Today, you have a chance to become a premium member of the podcast. Click one of the premium membership levels and you can get everything from a free book by an ag arts artist to free postcards to extra bonus interviews to the chance to have a piece of writing critiqued by me and a free workshop or reading by Mary Swander. So go to those show notes, scroll down and click to become a premium member. Thank you so much for your support. She floats over rivers and flies over plains With a school book in hand and a telegraph line With a wave to the wagon, the settlers and trains Manifest destiny, ordained by God To spread wealth and democracy through this vast land She's wrapped in white silk with a star in her hair She's up in the clouds with no thought of below, for she is the goddess, the American Empire. Manifest destiny, ordained by God to spread wealth and democracy through this vast land. That was Laura Hudson Kittrell, composer and musician, singing Manifest Destiny in my new play, Squatters on Red Earth, a drama that has been supported by grants from two foundations. Anonymous was a woman in cooperation with the New York Foundation for the Arts and the State of Iowa Historical Society, Inc. The play opens June 9th, 2023, 8 p.m. at the Amana Performing Arts Center, Amana, Iowa, and June 10th, 2 and 7 p.m. at the Weeding Theater, Toledo, Iowa. The drama centers on a peaceful relationship between the Amana Inspirationists and the Meskwaki Native Americans during the white settler land grab in the United States. Annuities, treaties, allotments, and the Indian Removal Act were all designed to drive the natives from their land and develop agriculture, towns, cities, roads, railroads, and industry across the vast western expanses of the United States. The white settlers convinced themselves of the righteousness of their actions, in part through their belief in manifest destiny, the idea that we were destined by God to tame the western land and its people. They thought they were ordained to dominate the space and create a prosperous society. Manifest destiny, ordained by God to spread wealth and democracy through this vast land. Safe and sound in the east, from the dark west, she wants the wheels turning and milling the grain to ship to the cities on barges and trains. Manifest destiny, ordained by God to spread wealth and democracy through this vast land. War, rape, starvation, and genocide 
followed the white settlers across the plains. I knew the broad brushstrokes of that history, although I didn't realize how calculated the land grab actually was. In my own mother's family, white, settler, famine, Irish, the story was a bit different. We were Irish homesteaders, colonialists fleeing British colonialists, who plopped down in western Iowa on native land. There, my great-grandparents raised a family of 10, losing several children, but living side by side for years with the natives, most likely the Potawatomi. My great-grandfather built a house, a duplex of sorts. My family lived peacefully on one side and the natives lived on the other. The natives had the good sense to leave Iowa in the winter for the south, but they returned every year to live temporarily in their wigwams. We always knew it was spring, my grandmother said, when we looked outside and saw them putting up their wigwams in the pasture. I imagine that there had to be other cooperative stories like this, clearly different from the standard textbook history I'd been fed as a child. We were still talking capitalism and colonialism, but with faces on the people involved. My mother's family was pushed out of their homeland by the potato famine, a result of British imperialism. Then they came to the States and pushed another group off their land. Did this kind of displacement repeat itself throughout history? And what was the land on the plains like when my family arrived? The natives were hunters and gatherers, but did they farm? If so, what were their techniques? A few winters ago, I plopped down in my chair in front of my wood stove and dove into a pile of books from the history of the settlement of Turtle Island to the ideologies of those who came for plunder or venture to those fleeing war or religious persecution. I read about the natural history of the Midwest, the great expanses of prairie, the wetlands and savannas. The Europeans looked at the Midwestern landscape as nothing more than a bunch of weeds. But underneath the weeds, they discovered rich black soil, soil that could grow an abundance of food. So they drained the wetlands, plowed and planted without thought of losing this precious topsoil through erosion or mismanagement. They shot bison out of train windows for sport fenced the land, and grazed cattle. In contrast, I read about the natives and their ecological and sophisticated systems of agriculture, from the way they harvested game to the ways they created complex irrigation systems in the desert, to their floating gardens in the middle of the lakes of Mexico. Bison were a key element of prairie ecology providing food, clothing, and shelter for the natives. The bison grazed the grassland, preventing trees from taking over the prairie. The bison hooves pushed the prairie seed into the soil, allowing grasses and wildflowers to thrive. Today, we're discovering techniques like no-till farming, companion planting, and prairie strips that natives were implementing thousands of years ago. In my reading, I found a sketch of Rock Island in the middle of the Mississippi River, a place where I was once employed during college to punch computer cards. Each card contained a tiny microfilm of a missile. 
I had only known Rock Island as a military base, one that had once been the Andersonville of the North, a Civil War prison camp, rows and rows of plain white markers of dead soldiers lined each side of the main road. In the sketch, the road was an indigenous trail, cutting through a wild and lush land, the grasses and trees bending toward each other to create a womb-like Garden of Eden effect. Not a person, not a tank or a factory in sight, only the trail leading through a land in the middle of the massive Mississippi, father of waters. All this beauty gone in just a few decades, gone to the military-industrial complex. In the past, I'd seen various reconstructive depictions of the prairie, before and after white settlement, but nothing this dramatic, this real, and nothing like this landscape I'd known so well. The native trail across the island transformed into the paved road I've driven so many times, a small microcosm of the work of the white settlers. Wow. What about the rest of the country? What devastation had occurred across the plains? And what about things like the Homestead Act, a decree that my textbook made into a benevolent opportunity for poor, starving immigrant families like mine? And what of the Morrell Act and the land-grant universities that, again, were framed like huge opportunities for the common people to learn skills in an agrarian society? skills that gave them a leg up. I began to question everything I'd ever read in my high school and college history textbooks. The Trail of Tears, the Dawes Act. I read about the squeeze the white settlers put on the natives, slowly taking over their land. I saw paradigms at work. Each group who settled on Turtle Island thought that they had a right to the territory. Some, like the Puritans, paused when they saw that the land was already inhabited, but they were all too enmeshed in their own loyalties and belief systems to take another course of action. Night after winter night, I read about the complete mismatch between the white settler perception of the landscape and its people and the indigenous view. For example, in the indigenous system, the women farmed and were leaders in their tribal societies. The white settler patriarchal system held the opposite belief, and men from European cultures were appalled that women would have any power. Nor could the whites understand the native methods of farming, the men fanning out over hunting grounds. The whites wanted native men farming in a small, stationary location. The whites would take over and manage the rest of the land. And the whites wanted natives to plow. They thought they could be more productive and better farmers if they would only turn the soil. Root or die, the whites told the natives. And here's Rip Russell the star of Squatters on Red Earth, with an excerpt from the show. 
And so we had contact with the Meskwakis, and they us. We were Germans with whiskers growing on our cheeks. Catfish, they called us. A man of colonists, we called ourselves. From the Bible, Song of Solomon, meaning remain faithful. Faithfully, we white settlers kept up our song. Plow, plow, plow. We picked up the soil in our hands, rubbing it between our fingers, like nothing we'd ever seen. And while we bent over, cultivating weeds, breaking our backs, the Meskwakis let their large squash leaves do the work, filling in the gaps, mulching between the rows. Live on a few acres, the white settlers told the natives. We will mind the rest. Plow and be more productive, the settlers said. Plow, plow, plow. Grow corn and pigs. Sell, sell, sell. We will build stockyards in Chicago. Hog butcher for the world. Root or die, the white settlers said. Root or die. Root or die, the white settlers said. We must settle the West. The natives had no plows. They pushed their seeds into the soil with sticks. They hoed with antlers only once. They hadn't disturbed the soil, so fewer weeds came to the surface. And they had fewer noxious weeds to begin with. The Europeans brought mustard and thistle. The natives planted squash between the rows, living mulch to smother the weeds. They preserved meat, squash, beans, and corn, the three sisters, by drying. They placed their corn in pots and buried them in the ground. Recent discoveries have found the corn still well-preserved after 500 years. Manifest destiny Ordained by God to spread wealth and democracy Through this vast land She wipes out the bison and plows up the soil She wipes out the prairie, the people, their home Unknowing white settlers bust body and soul Manifest destiny Ordained by God to spread wealth and democracy Through this vast land Finally, I knew I couldn't begin to write the play without the help and guidance of Native Americans. So I contacted my former student and friend, Shelley Buffalo, at the Meskwaki Settlement in central Iowa. She arranged a meeting with a group of Meskwakis who provided me with historical background, oral histories, and their perspective on the issue, plus advice about composing and producing the play. Now, we don't want a genocide on the stage, Suzanne Buffalo said. It's too triggering to our youth. I agreed. How about dramatizing our relationship with the Amana colonies, Shelley offered, filling me in on the story. The Meskwakis had originally lived on the land the Amana inspirationists settled, planting lotus in the wetland that would become known as the Lily Lake. Then the federal government drove the Meskwakis off their land to a reservation in Kansas. They longed to return to Iowa, but knew nothing of money or land transactions. The inspirationists bought the Meskwakis' own land back, then held the deed until the natives could pay them by selling 
furs and other goods. We interacted with lots of settlers, not just the Germans, Jonathan Buffalo said. He outlined the different European groups the Meskwakis had encountered, the Spanish, English, French, widening the context of the story. Then Suzanne recounted an encounter with the Norwegians in a cave in Wisconsin. Both groups were scared of the other. But after the Meskwakis helped deliver the Norwegian woman's baby, tensions faded. Eventually, down the line, the families intermarried, and Suzanne is a descendant of this union. Shelley and Suzanne mentioned the Meskwaki Youth Theater Troupe at the settlement school. I was excited about their skills and hoped to incorporate them into the play. Suzanne also connected me to Mary Bennett, the historian at the State of Iowa Historical Society. Bennett had done an extensive research project on the Meskwakis, and a few days later, the mail brought a DVD filled with valuable information and photos. Over email, I received an article by historian Peter Hanley from Amana documenting the Amana-Meskwaki relationship. Hanley's writing was filled with detail and with photos explaining the encounter between these two groups who wanted nothing more than to be left alone by the outside world. I poured over images of Meskwaki women, children carried on their backs, leaving the Amana kitchens where they had traded beaded pouches and dresses for cracklings and head cheese. Manifest destiny ordained by God to spread wealth and democracy through this vast land. Safe and sound in the east from the dark west she wants the wheels turning and milling the grain to ship to the cities on barges and trains. Manifest destiny ordained by God to spread wealth and democracy through this vast land. I worked on the script for the next nine months going through three full drafts, adding and deleting characters, scenes, monologues, and dialogue. I finally honed the play down to an hour show with one white settler character, a musician, and the Meskwaki Settlement School Youth Theater Troupe. The characters drive the story forward, defining the encounter between the two communal societies. The changing landscape and farming techniques were illustrated on a cranky, an unwinding scroll, a medieval puppetry device, the precursor of film. The use of the cranky opened up the possibility of shadow puppets manipulated by the young actors. The puppetry actually became more of a problem than I had ever imagined. I showed the script to several theater friends who exclaimed, but there's puppetry in this show. Puppets! Somehow they thought I'd stepped over a line. And music, one of them said. Yes, music, I responded. It will be beautiful. And there are a lot of lines here. Yes, essentially it's a one-man show. Immediately I thought of casting Rip Russell, one of the best regional actors I knew, who had played hundreds of roles with almost all the local theaters. Then I thought, of Laura Hudson Kittrell, 
one of the best musicians in the area, who could compose and sing with a gorgeous, clear voice. I was delighted that they both agreed to perform in Squatters. Well, it's been a really wonderful experience. Um, Mary gave me sort of an okay to change some words that I said, oh, but it's Mary Saunder. I don't know that I can do that. But I have, and it's been just a joy to do. I think the biggest challenges for me have been both taking something that's written more or less in prose and um, and finding the rhythm in it. And um, Mary's a wonderful writer, and so that rhythm does kind of come naturally as it uh, and flows together really well. And the other challenge is singing in three different languages, four if you count the English, which I can do. But but the French and the the French, the German and the Spanish is kind of a challenge. But a director? Clearly, I needed a director who knew puppetry. Why had I set up this challenge for myself? Through a consultation with Monica Leo of the Oiland Spiegel Puppetry Center in West Liberty, I found Brant Bullman, a puppeteer and the chair of the theater arts department at William Penn University in Oskaloosa, Iowa. Then Shelley Buffalo, artist and tradesperson, jumped in and asked to design the set with the Cranky and its illustrations. I tapped an old friend whom I'd worked with in a children's theater for the costume design, Michelle Payne Hines, who found finding clothes over eBay a nice break from acting and directing. She became part of our crew. Brant made contact with the settlement school and recruited seven enthusiastic middle school students. The grant money came in. I set up performance dates and theaters in both Amana and Toledo, Iowa, near the settlement, and we were off. We began rehearsals on Zoom, then moved to my studio in downtown Kelowna, joining forces under Brant's direction. And here's Brant Bullman. I have been a puppeteer and a uh, puppet enthusiast my whole life, and I've, uh, I'd like to share that I grew up watching those PBS shows with puppets in them, but uh, what really got me hooked on puppetry was when I went to Star Wars and saw that the way that the puppets were like people, like actors that were in the scene and completely interacting with the live human actors. So that's how I got involved in it. Now here I am directing uh, college people in plays with uh, uh, on stage doing the same kind of puppetry. So this is a really neat uh, project because we're working with a cranky, which is kind of like a, a, a TV screen or a movie screen or shadow box. And we're also incorporating some shadow puppetry, which I call live action cartoon making. And then we're also going to have our uh, our younger actors from the Meskwaki settlement who will have some hand-operated puppetry as well. So there will be a lot of different ways that we're getting the story uh, told through puppetry. Again, the upcoming opening performances of Squatters on Red Earth are June 9th, 8 p.m., Amana Performing Arts Center, Amana, Iowa and June 10th, 2 and 7 p.m., Weeding Theater, Toledo, Iowa. These performances are free and open to the public with a suggested free will donation. Tickets first come for serve at the door. Or to reserve free tickets, put tickets in the subject line and email agartsoffice at gmail.com. 
Ag Arts, A-G-A-R-T-S, office at gmail.com. The play runs for an hour with a talkback discussion following the performance. For more information or queries about the tour, please contact Janine Kosbick at touringswp at gmail.com. That's touring, T-O-U-R-I-N-G, S-W-P, at gmail.com. Manifest destiny, ordained by God to spread wealth and democracy through this vast land. Safe and sound in the east, from the dark west, she wants the wheels turning and milling the grain to ship to the cities on barges and trains. Manifest destiny, ordained by God to spread wealth and democracy through this vast land. She wipes out the bison and plows up the soil. She wipes out the prairie, the people, their home. Unknowing white settlers bust body and soul. Manifest destiny, ordained by God to spread wealth and democracy through this vast land. I'm happy to announce that Buggy Land is now part of the Iowa Podcasters Collaborative, a group of podcasters creating content related to news, culture, and more. We're organized by the indomitable Robert Leonard. This group arose from the Iowa Writers Collaborative under the leadership of Julie Gamak. Here I've joined the ranks of so many talented writers, including Pulitzer Prize winner Art Cullen, Douglas Burns, Laura Bellin, and Damon James. The Writers Collaborative is a network of Substack pages, each writer in his or her own realm, but all linked together. I've created two Substack pages. On the first page, Mary Swander's Buggy Land, you will get transcripts of Buggyland monologues and interviews, photos, and extra commentaries. On the second page, called Mary Swander's Emerging Voices, you will read young, diverse writers commenting on current social justice issues. Please subscribe. It's free, or if you care to, you can donate some money at substack.com. S-U-B-S-T-A-C-K dot com. And that brings today's episode to a close. We were produced by Rick Brewer of Brouhaha Audio Production. We had the support of the Werner Ellithorpe Fund at the Oregon Community Foundation and the Catlio Levine Fund, which also helps fund our farm to artist residencies. We welcome your support. Like and follow us at Facebook and Instagram. Become a premium member. Or go to our website at agarts.org, A-G-A-R-T-S dot O-R-G, and hit that red donate button. 
Thanks for your help, and we'll see you next time. Brouhaha. But there's puppetry in the show. Puppets! <laughs>